Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, thank you for joining us as you do each and every week. So much exciting news to tell you guys about. I told you last week our new website was coming. It is up. It is live. Check it out, hazardground.com. The entire thing is redone. Every single one of our previous episodes is archived on the website. So whatever you're missing, whichever story you'd like to hear, whoever you'd like to hear about, all of them are there. And of course, we have a brand new logo. So as you've seen on some of our social media sites, you've started to see some changes in the logo. That is our official new logo, out with the old, in with the new. Uh, We really like the design of this one. Really hope that you guys kind of see what we're driving at when you look at this brand new logo, when you click on the homepage. And we certainly think that this hones in a little bit more on the central thesis and the central themes of what we talk about here on the Hazard Ground podcast. With that, while you're on the website, remind you about our deal with Amazon. Here's how you find that Amazon button. You can either scroll all the way to the bottom and you'll see the Amazon button there to go right to Amazon.com or click on the Sponsors tab in the upper right-hand corner. You'll also see the Amazon button on the Sponsors page. Reminder that anything you spend on Amazon.com after going through the Hazard Ground website, we get a portion of that back and we donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard on the Hazard Ground podcast. Don't forget about those social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us there. Keep up with the show and what we have going on as well want to remind you guys to send us an email producer at hazardground.com we love the feedback love hearing from you guys on potential guests stories you want to see told or just general comments which you like and don't like about the podcast leave those itunes ratings and reviews as well those help us out a bunch this week's episode another great one coming for you a very unique episode and here we go joining us this week is a former petty officer first class in the u.s navy who went on to become a navy seal he was actually born into royalty into west africa and ended up joining the navy seals after a troubled childhood in the bronx new york he is now an author a writer director and actor you have seen him in the 2017 movie transformers the last night he is remy adelaide joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Remy, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. Okay, so you're the first member of Royalty we've had on the podcast, so I'm excited about that. Um, but it's a very interesting <laughs> story because, um, you know, when I started reading the background on you, like my first thought was like coming to America, right? Like it's, you know, African royalty, and then all of a sudden yeah. you come to America and you have to start from the ground up all over again. So, Kind of yeah. just before we, we usually start with like how you got in the Navy, but give me the background leading up to that and your childhood in Africa and things of that nature. Yeah. So my dad, he, uh, uh, he was a, a chief in the Yoruba tribe, uh, in, in, in European and Western culture. Uh, we were full of fertile royalty as king, queen, prince, princess, Dutch, that sort of thing in Nigerian culture and a lot of West African culture, West African culture royalties referred to as chief and your last name. So my last name, Adeleke, uh, means the crown is above. Um, oh, and wow. so my dad, he, he, yeah, he was, uh, his, his father had like nine, to nine wives. So my dad was the first born son of the nine wives. And then, uh, when my grandfather died, my dad moved down to the South of Nigeria. And, uh, he was, that's where he received his Western education from Christian missionaries. They had been there, not just teaching the Bible, but also 
uh, teaching math and science and literature and just, you know, all the, all the educational elements of the West. And uh, he ended up, you know, doing really, really well, got a full-ride scholarship to study engineering and architecture at London, um, got his master's uh, in engineering and architecture, and then he started just building his his, his enterprise uh, in, in Europe. And uh, he traveled all over the world. He was one of the first black men on the board of the World Trade Center in New York. Um, he was on a ma- major uh, financial board in, in, in London, the first black person on the board in London. And uh, he just kind of rode through the ranks, but after a few years, he decided, you know, he didn't want to work in Europe anymore. He wanted to go back to Nigeria to really build Nigeria up to beat this country he thought it could be. And so um, he went back to Nigeria and built just, you know, a mass enterprise with car dealerships and an engineering firm, art gallery, just all of these, all of these different businesses, all these different ventures. And he ended up becoming a multimillionaire. Um, he used his money to, to uh, create one of the first man-made islands in the world, uh, which exists to this day. And that island is known as Banana Island off the coast of Lagos. Um, and that's kind of around the time I came into the picture. Um, I was born in 1982, so I was born into, into the wealth and the luxury and, and travel the world and cars and nannies and drivers and parties and just all of these different, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, things that, that the rich and the wealthy have access to. Um, but unfortunately, in uh, 1987, uh, the Nigerian government decided to strip my father to the most valuable asset, which was the island. My dad had invested millions and millions of dollars into this island. Uh, and uh, when they did that, uh, my dad went to war with them. He died a few days later, and then we were left penniless, went from rich to poor. Uh, and that's kind of how I ended up. My mom, you know, being an American, I tell people all the time, as you alluded to earlier, my mom and dad still used the real version of coming to America because my mom was a New Yorker. And uh, she met my dad at the Metropolitan Museum of Natural History, uh, and she they you know got married five months later, and then she moved to Africa. Wow. Uh, so my mom, you know, yes. So she was when my dad died, and we were penniless. She was just like, "There's no way I'm raising my kids in Africa," and so that's where she permanently relocated to Bronx. Okay, so that, I mean, that's that in and of itself is a ton to digest. Uh, let me see if I could just. Yeah pick apart some things here. So when you said your dad went to war, was he killed in combat or how did he end no, up? No, no, no. Yeah, it was like metaphorical he, war? He, he went, yeah, 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 court battle. He just went to court with the okay. Nigerian government. And, uh, it, it, there's a lot. I really break it all down in my book. Uh, so there's, it's, 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 I spell it out in a really clear way. I, I did tons of research on it. And, um, you know, obviously I have my mom's history, but I wanted to get, you know, up-to-date history. So I spoke to my uh, one of my dad's mentees, there's a lawyer that's still on a case. The case is still an open case now. Uh, it's still being fought. As a matter of fact, a few years back, the Nigerian government offered my half-brother uh, a few million dollars for him to kind of shut up and go away. Uh, and he turned it down because the island is worth billions of dollars now. Um, so uh, so I, anyway, I did a lot of lot of research, but he went to, he went to when I say war, he went to court. He went to court. He, he pulled his, his, his uh, connections together to try to, you know, Fight against this, which was a which was a, a military regime at the time, uh, government. So, um, and he, he just died, you know, within the middle of it, you know, just mysteriously. It was just, you know, I kind of break it all, break that down in the book, but it was just really, really mysterious the way he died. I mean, do you believe that th- there were nefarious circumstances to the mystery of his death? Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Right. I mean, I mean you were alluding to that. Even, I was just wanted to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because even before. Before he died, like there was a lot of shade in this land. As a matter of fact, you know, the night that the Lagos state government, which is the, the part of the district, asset from him at any point before, because, you know, what he bought, he bought a swamp. You know, he bought a lagoon. 
Um, and, and, and there was nothing there. And the reason why, and there's more to the story. Again, I know I keep referring to the book, but it's all in the book, but. No, that's um, fine. And the name of the book is Transform, by the way. Um, you know, and it was, yeah. it was just released last month. People can get it at all major bookstores and it's okay to keep referring to it. I just, you know, wanted to give everybody the information. Yeah. And so, yeah, so he, uh, they, it was, it was really silly because they waited until this lagoon was developed into land to say you cannot have this land. You know, I mean, it'd have been one thing if he would have hired the Dutch uh, 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 dredging company to start dredging. And right before they started dredging, the government said, oh, you can't dredge there. You know, that belongs to us. But they waited <laughs> strategically until um, he formed land. <laughs> right. And that's when they said, oh, you can't have this. So, um, and as a matter of fact, the guy who my, who my dad, dad security guard is, is, is pretty much runs the island now. So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shadiness around the whole thing. That's crazy. Um, and, and you don't have to give away too many details if they're all in the book, and obviously you want people to buy the book, so I'm not upset about that. But do you have any stake in fighting for the island right now? Uh, like me personally? Yes. Um, I mean, you know, I, looking back, you know, I had a hard life because of, you know, my dad's death and the loss of, of, of everything that we had. Um but the life that I've had made me the man I am today. Uh, so I'm kind of grateful for it. So, you know, I'm just of the mindset of, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go out and try to fight for it or, or, you know, advocate for it. But if it happens, it happens. Um, uh, I, I think my way of fighting is through storytelling. Uh-huh. Um, and that's why I wrote the book. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to tell my dad's story. Uh, and, and, you know, and so who knows who's going to pick up my book. I've I had somebody from the night from Nigeria reach out to me, um, actually last week and he was just like he told me he's like you need to keep fighting <laughs> he's like you need mm-hmm. to keep fighting and, and so it was encouraging because word is getting back to Nigeria that the book's out my story's out in the public eye so who knows um, who's going to come across the story in Nigeria and say oh yeah I remember that that was a shitty situation let's make things right because now we have this guy who's he's not like some local Nigerian trying to scam to say oh this island belongs to that you know, this is some guy who's who's been you know raised to prominence as a former Navy SEAL, an actor, a writer, producer, working in Hollywood, and all of these things. So he has no reason to want to come back to Nigeria to try, try to take something. So who knows who's going to hear hear about the story sure. and uh, do what he's done? Now you were f- holding my breath, right? You were five years old when your father was killed. Um, what do you remember about him? What can you tell me about him? Uh, he's just a really intelligent man. Just a very intelligent, strategic. I mean, I get a lot of my. Um, my grit from him. Um, he, he was very obstinate, you know. Um, I'm very obstinate. <laughs> I mean, kind of got to be obstinate, got to be obstinate to get to where I am today, and, and I've made it through things that I've made it through. Um, and so that's something I remember about him. He's always, he was all about the mind, uh, about the brain, uh, because he, you know, he knew the power of the brain. I just, I remember one time my brother and I got to a fight, and he took my, my brother took my head and smashed up against the wall, and, you know, uh, uh, kind of left a dent in the wall and I was bleeding from my head and my dad was just really upset. He snaked my brother and he just really gave it to him because, you know, my, my to my dad, my brother was harming my most valuable asset, you know, for some for some parents. It's like, oh, you know, your, your son being fit and being athletic, that's important to them. For my dad, it was brain, you know, because he knew that if your brain was intact and if you could really tap into the potential that you could do whatever you want to do in this world, you know, create whatever you want to create. So that's one thing I remember. All right, let's turn it back to you. Uh, I have small children. I have, I have twin three-year-olds. And, you know, 
we move from house to house. And you just explain, hey, we're going to a new house. So you at five years old, your mother explaining, we're going to a new country. Uh, what was that like for you? Uh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it was seamless to me. I mean, because one, okay. I was five. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's why I was oh, just yeah. curious. Did you, did you notice a difference? Yeah. No, not really. Was, uh, you know, I was I was so young that I didn't I didn't fully understand anything that was going on. Uh, my mom told my brother and I that my dad died. She said it in such a common way that me and my brother, you know, said okay, and we went back to playing in the bedroom as if nothing happened. Um, uh, so you know, then you know, I was five. I didn't understand that. And um, my dad traveled a lot, so I just said I think in my little mind I may have just believed he's on another business trip. You know, he's coming back in a few days. Um, and then, you know, my mom, you know, she did a great job of, uh, just creating this world for us where, you know, it was the best analogy I use is, you know, it was as though she created this movie set on the movie set, everything seemed perfect. Um, um, you know, uh, in this little bubble, um, um, but out, off the movie set was absolute chaos, you know, was, was the Bronx, was the streets, was all these things. But my mom, you know, at a young age, she was really able to keep us in the house you know, and, and try to keep the apartment as nice as, as she could and just keep it as, as, as close to, um, what, what Af- as close to Africa, you know, I have a joke in the book that I say, you know, my mom, after what the Nigerian government did to my mom, my mom, you know, always talked about how she hated Africa and just going back to Africa, Nigeria, just because of what had happened. But, uh, you know, joke in the book is she kept Africa in the house, <laughs> you know, so she hated this place, but she kept it all around us. And I think that she was really trying to remind us of our culture, where we came from, but also she was trying to, you know, keep us from, um, um, from, from the reality of what had happened. It wasn't until I was about eight years old that I finally realized what was going on. Cause I began to, you know, see, you know, my mom go to the rent office and ask for, you know, extra few days to pay the rent. I would, me and my brother would share clothes. We would watch our, wash our underwears and, always wash our underwears and socks in the sink with a bar of ivory soap, you know, just to, and then hang it up on top of the thing for it to dry, you know, but at times my mom had enough food to feed herself. She had just enough food to feed my brother. So as I got, you know, seven, eight years old, I began to really, okay, recognize what's going on. And now to see my dad, I've been going for three years at this point. So that's when I began to really put two and two together. And that's when I was just like, oh, wow, like this is our life. And, and that's when I kind of had like a breakdown. Well, break down to what extent that an eight-year-old can have. Can you kind of fill in the details? You know, just I, it was, I just remember crying in my room. I was in my bedroom, and uh, uh, I, you know, I was just looking around at our situation, our lack. You know, we didn't have much, and uh, I remember it was, there was this uh, this uh, lamp that we had, and it didn't have a shade on it, so it was a skeleton of a lamp, and we had this dresser that was all beat up, and on top of the dresser was a picture of my dad, and so. I just remember standing up that picture, just breaking down, crying. You know, it's just like, oh man, I wish you was here. Because if you was here, we'd have a better life, and uh, we're never going to have a better life because he's never coming back. I mean, that's just uh, I'm processing it all. It, it's a ton, uh, you know. It, as a father, you, you start to realize that you're, you know, when you have kids, they go through this stuff. Um, you know, you, you just want to take the pain away for young kids, right? I mean, you're a father now. Yeah. You, you understand that, and mm-hmm. it's just. Uh, it's it's a lot to comprehend. Um, more about your childhood. I mean, you know, eight years old, you don't get the Navy for quite some time. So I know it's hard to span 12, 13 years, whatever it may be. But um, what was it like? I mean, what stands out to you about your childhood? Oh, man, it's a lot. I mean, it was, you know, it was a group of friends that I hung out with. We used to fight a lot, fight each other, fight other people. Uh, you know, I grew up fighting. I mean, I was, that was just 
it was just a way of life for me. You know, <laughs> I'm talking about the real MMA before MMA was MMA. Right. <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, just in a public education system, which was horrible. And my mom knew it was horrible. My mom was a teacher in the South Bronx, so she would uh, she would make my brother and I write reports uh, on the weekends. And if we got in trouble, she'd make us read articles in the New York Times and write reports and articles. And if the, if the writing wasn't near perfect, she would make us start all over again. And, and, and on summertime, she would make us, you know, uh, she would homeschool us on the summertime and make sure that we were ahead. Um, when the next school year came around, because, you know, again, she was just trying to prepare. She knew, I mean, I think the statistics at the time were only, only 20% of people from the Bronx went to college, you know, and I think it was like 60% of kids from the Bronx dropped out of high school. And, uh, and again, a lot of that is due to the horrible public education system. It was, it was just atrocious. And so, um, you know, I remember that. I remember my mom just really fighting against the odds to make sure that her kids, her two sons, had a future. Um, uh, I, I remember, you know, seeing a lot of injustices related to the police. Um, see it, I would see the police abuse their power, slam people on the concrete, and you know, fight people on in the train station. I saw a lot of crazy stuff, and you know, brought up, you know, I hated the cops because of a lot of stuff that I saw at a very young, young age. Um, especially happened to minorities, specifically in the Bronx, and. Uh, um, yeah, man, I, I, you know, that, that, that girl over there and got into my teens, you know, I, uh, you know, I wanted money. And, and so all I knew from, from the culture that I grew up in was, you know, you gotta, you gotta hustle, you gotta, you know, do what you gotta do. And so I started, I started out stealing and then, you know, selling drugs and then, you know, running high level scams. And, uh, by the time I was 19, I built this like illegal enterprise where I spent it, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars a week. Um, so I mean, it was a jungle. It was a concrete jungle. It was a hard place to live in. It was a hard environment to live in. It's like, you know, kill or be killed. You know, one of those environments that, you know, you, you know, you got to do what you got to do to survive. But, you know, I'm grateful for growing up in the Bronx. You know, I saw a lot of things. Um, I experienced a lot of things. Um, uh, but it, you know, gave me the strength and the grit that I had. And it gave me the street wisdom and street smarts that I had that, you know, I needed to have when I later got into my career in the Navy and the SEAL teams and that sort of thing. So, um, I, I, you know, it was, it was not easy, but I want to trade growing up in the Bronx of the world, um, because it, it, it really formed me into the man I am today. It's not something you hear a lot of people say, uh, growing up in that environment that they wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, it, pause on all those things, how it translates to the Navy for one second, but at no point in time when you were doing all this stuff that you knew was illegal, that you knew was bad. Did you ever think my dad would be mad if he knew I was doing this? Did your mom ever say your father would be disappointed in you? Anything like that that would kind of trigger it and snap you back into reality? Uh, from my dad, no. I mean, I think, you know, when I got older, I was just, I had forgotten completely about him. You know what I mean? Because he was, um, he was he's never around. So, I mean, especially as I got older, you know, his memories begin to fade. So the concept of having a dad or right. making a dad proud or not, I mean, I, that, that was, that never crept into my mind. Um, even now as a, I'm about to be 37 years old, like the concept of, you know, making a father proud, I, I don't get that, you know, not because, you know, I don't believe in it, but because I've never had it in my life. Now, as a father now with three children, I get being that, I get it from that perspective because, you know, um, I am proud of my kids and I do love my kids and I do try to affirm them. And I do affirm, affirm them every day uh, because I, you know, I want them to know that I'm proud of them and I want them to do things that, that they, that, that they believe will make me proud, you know? So, um, 
but yeah, then those teenage years, no, you know, because the concept of of a father never didn't really exist in my mind. As far as my mom, um, yeah, I mean, I totally it was always in the back of my mind that you know I don't want to hurt my mom, I don't want to um, end up in jail and have her, you know, having to visit me in jail or any of these things. And um, so those were the yeah, you know, my mom is still kind. Of, my mom used to discipline my brother and I, you know, by spankings. You know, we kids and. Uh, one thing that that did for me is it instilled this concept of uh, consequences for actions. And so um, I always knew that at some point I was going to pay the man for what I'm doing. I knew that a consequence would come. Um, and, you know, consequences did come, you know, but the good thing was the consequences were didn't lead to death or imprisonment. They almost did, but uh, it was a wake-up call for me. So you're uh, essentially a New York native. Um, so 9-11 must have been a different day for you. I mean, I, I tell, I'm a native New Yorker myself, as you know, you and I have talked about before we started recording, but um, it clearly was a different day for us than it was for a lot of other people across the country. So what do you, yeah. what do you remember about 9-11? Where were you? Yeah, I was in my um, in my mom's apartment, and uh, she woke me up and told me, hey, you got to turn on the news, see what's going on. I turned on the news. So it was going on. So then the plane crashed to the building. And then, you know, I, I went outside my building and there was this girl who I used to date. We went, um, we went, her shoes, she built two buildings down for me. And we went on, a, we uh, took the elevator. It was like 17 floors in her building. So we took the elevator all the way up and we had a key um, uh, to the roof. And we opened, it, opened the roof and we just stood up there and watched the towers and watched the smoke and watched it all from, uh, from the top of the building. So, uh, yeah, I'll never forget that day. I mean, sirens going off all over the place. Yeah. I, siren. You're 19 at the time, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. At that point in time, did you have any sense of patriotism about your country? Um, I don't know if I would say patriotism. One thing I would say is uh, at that time, I would say, I would say, you know, growing up, I always hated bullies. You know, one thing that, one thing about me is, you know, at that time period and even before that time period of my life, you know, I never did the gang thing. You know, the reason why I never did the gang thing is because I hated gangs. I hated this concept of five dudes beating up one person. You know, to me, that was that was just, that was weak, you know. And I saw a lot of that. I saw people got, get jumped. I got jumped. I mean, I would walk down the street and people just get jumped and robbed and knocked out for no reason. And uh, what that instilled to me was this, this concept of, of you know hate this this hatred for bullies, you know. So I, I just hated bullies. So uh, when I saw the twin towers go down, to me it was just like they were bullies to me. It was more so like I I hated the fact that these people um, killed innocent people. They bullied innocent people, you know, and killed them for no reason. So that bothered me um, uh, more more than anything. Now, Ken Patriot. Could patriot have patriot patriotism have been a part of it? Absolutely, I'm sure. I'm sure there was a percentage of that within me, but for the most part, it was just this anger for uh, for, for the victims. Um, you know. Well, and and the only reason I asked that is because you know, in 2002, you joined the Navy. I didn't know if that was the catalyst for it or not. No, definitely wasn't. The catalyst so, for it. <laughs> what was the catalyst for you to join the Navy? Um. I had gotten involved in a deal with a drug dealer that went bad and uh, mm-hmm. um, he threatened my life. And uh, um, that was a huge wake up call for me um, as far as, you know, because he was a killer. You know, he was 
a type of guy who had a reputation that he had. Um, and uh, I didn't want, you know, and so after I made him the money back that I made him, I made the decision that I'm going to get out of the street life. And uh, this was December of 2001. And six months, for six months, I did nothing. But uh, kind of laid around my apartment in the end of the round, trying to, you know, trying to make things work with the record company that I had and, you know, just trying to figure it out. And um, in, in June of 2002, I was lying in my bed and I literally hit his voice just speak to me and say, you need to get out of here. You need to join the military. And uh, I propped myself up. And I looked around and there was not a person in the room. The TV was not on. And I, was, I lived on the third floor. But, and, you know, you can hear people outside, you know, speaking. But it wasn't somebody outside speaking, saying, Robert, you need to join the military. But I just, I just, I heard this voice, this audible voice, tell me you need to join the military. And uh, I said no to myself, like, there's no way. And then I heard the voice again. And then I was just like, what? I felt like I was in Twilight Zone, and then at that time, I thought it was my subconscious really bothering me because uh, I had never experienced anything like that ever in my life. Um, and finally, I didn't hear it anymore. And then I got outside, I got up to bed, and this is the same exact room that I had broke down, you know, crying. And when I was eight years old, it was pretty much formatted the same way. And I looked around the room, and I was just like, man, I absolutely have nothing left. Like, everything that I've done from the time I came to this place to now has amounted to nothing. Like, I have nothing to show for it. I went from having thousands of dollars, you know, a week. I went from having a brand new nice car. I went from having girlfriends sleeping around and, and clubs and buying bottles at clubs. And I'm not even 21. I have a bunch of having all that to nothing. And it was at that point where I was just like, man, like, if I if I stay here, I'm gonna end up dead or in prison. You know, maybe you know whatever whatever was the prompting me. You know, it knows. I guess it knows what the plans are for me. And uh, you know, and the reason why I always say that it was never my plan, my idea is because I hated the military, I hated the government, um, <clears throat> I hated the police. As I said earlier, and I associated anybody in uniform as a police officer uh, just because of the things that I saw and. Uh, you know, I mean, I always saw the military as this oppressive group that just went around and, you know, uh, you know, just just preyed on the weak. You know, I, I was just of that mindset at that time. You know, and again, a lot of that was tied to what I had seen, the injustices that I had seen growing up as a young kid. You know, when you're a kid and you see certain things, you know, you see a police officer and you, you look at them and you're just like, man, this guy's supposed to be upstanding citizen. He's supposed to be a protector, and they do something corrupt. You know, that scars you for a long period of time. So. I say all that to say, you know, the military was definitely not my idea and not something I wanted to do, but I finally gave, came to terms with the idea, okay, what, I don't have anything left. I'm going to get out of here, you know, and uh, I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to try this out. And, and that's what led me to the recruiter's office. At first, I went to Rico office, and I sat there for 15 minutes and no one showed up. <laughs> and then I, uh, I, you know, there was coffee on the desk, so the person had, somebody had to be there. Um, but they never, just never showed up. And then I, uh, went next door to the Navy recruiter's office and there was a recruiter there, Tiana Reyes. And, uh, um, and, and you know, she, first thing she did was she had me take a practice as that. The next thing she did was she ran my background and she ran my background, found out I had two warrants out for my arrest. I had a warrant in New Jersey and a warrant in New York. And, uh, um, she, she I got ready, got up and got ready to run out the office. And she said, where are you going? I said, I'm getting out of here. She said, do you have a suit and tie? I said, no. She said, do you have a collar shirt? I said, yeah, I can find one. 
And I came back the next day and she was in her dress uniform. And she took me to both judges, Judge of Jersey, Judge of New York, um, advocate on my behalf. She used the patriotism thing. She said, you know what this guy is doing by trying to join the Navy after the act of war. You know, we see this as a patriotic act. And, um, and, you know, I know he's made mistakes, but he still has potential, you know, and, and, and keep you guys expunge your record. And both judges unanimously expunge my record. And then she went a step further and, uh, Fudge the paperwork at the maps, and, and that's how I got into the Navy. And I think when I got in the Navy, what kept me straight was her decision and what she did for me. Because if I would have screwed up, I would have, you know, I'd have made her look bad, one. And two, I would have proved the system wrong. I would have proved the system right. Because essentially, because of my record, my mistakes, the governor was, was essentially saying that you are not qualified to join the military because you had a record. Uh, and, and so if I would have acted out or robbed somebody or stole or gotten a fight, whatever, I would have approved the system, right. That I wasn't qualified. And, and, you know, and then, then two, I just wanted to, I wanted to honor Tiana's, uh, uh, Tiana's decision, uh, for what she did for me. Um, and, and that's what kind of carried me through a lot of, a lot of the hard times I had in the Navy. And, uh, she, she, I, I later found out that she died four years after speaking to me in the Navy. So, wow. you know, yeah. That's crazy. I was just about to say, you got to love recruiters tenacity to get an enlistment, man. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've heard some stories, but that's getting, getting warrants out for your arrest expunged, uh, is, is a whole new level of recruiting that I haven't heard in quite some time. So, um, yeah, yeah well, you know, the reason why she did that, and you know, I, I found out she died last year. I didn't know that she, I, you know, I tried to find her after I finished writing the book. And, uh, you know, it led it led me to this this memorial page for her, and uh, but the cool thing was, you know, I was able to get in contact with her fans. I was able to be with her daughter and her uh, oh, and her, her her aunt and her mom in two weeks in New York. And uh, um, the first person I met was her brother. I was actually with her brother um, two weeks ago. Actually, last week in in Atlanta, we were together, and her brother told me, uh, you know, what she knew that kids like me didn't have a chance. Because uh, she was from the Bronx, and uh, and so you know she went above and beyond because she wanted to kind of she she knew that no one else would go above and beyond before me. Her brother also told me that you know he had misdemeanors, and she snuck him in the Air Force, and then she, he also told me that she would drive around the Bronx and find people they grew up with and say, "Hey, I see where your life is going. Stop selling drugs for me, going to the military." So that was that was what she did. <clears throat> That's amazing. Um, it really is. Like saving lives. That's saving lives kind of stuff. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah. Pretty, pretty incredible, to say the least. All right. So you get in the Navy. Clearly, you have no idea what you're getting into, right? Yeah. <laughs> boot, yeah. boot camp was a shock, I would say. Nah, boot camp was easy. Really? Was 20, actually, it was like comedy hour. No, nah, because, you know, I'm in boot camp. Before. I'm 20 at this time, at this point, and I'm in boot camp for all these kids who are 17, 18, straight out of high school. And um, the first night, you know, turn off the lights and all of these kids just wailing and crying because they really mom and dad. oh yeah oh yeah it was hilarious it was kids sniffling in their <laughs> rooms. i remember it was there were kids who were trying to get out the navy because you know and they were fake suicide or try to say they committed suicide because they boot camp was that bad that hard for them i'm just it was just funny to me um because here I am, this kid from the Bronx, you know, who had a hard life. <laughs> but these kids, you know, they, they're tripping, you know, over having three meals a day and being told when to go to bed or when to wake up. Did you ever like, think of trying to mentor any of these kids? 
Did you ever talk I mean, to any some of them? them I did. Some of them I did. Some of them I yeah, I took under my wing. I was, you know, I would get in the middle of, of, of conflicts. Yeah, no, absolutely. A lot of actually borders some I did. A lot of them. And they all looked up to me. A lot of these kids looked up to me because of the fact I was older. And then also, you know, I was from the Bronx. I was from New York City. And, you know, a lot of those kids were fascinated by New York City because they were kids from who never stepped foot in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kids from all around the country, but there were a lot from the Midwest and, you know, down south and these other areas. So, they, you know, everybody hears about New York City, City L.A., right? Mm -hmm. um, they treat you like that salsa fast. commercial. New York City? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Okay, so you get through boot camp fairly easily. Um, kind of just take me through how the idea of a Navy SEAL gets in front of you. Uh, well, I mean, the idea of the SEAL thing kind of came years earlier I, when I, uh, I saw a movie called The Rock. Well, actually, it was two movies. I saw a movie uh, called Bad Boys, and yeah, that was the first time uh, That was the first time I, I saw two African-Americans who were playing heroes, and they were, they were, they were really cool dudes. You know, they weren't, uh, they weren't, you know, they were cool, you know, and uh, they, they were like me. And then, he, and then, so that planned to see that, hey, I, I can be something other than a drug dealer or a rapper or you know, athlete that could be a hero, you know, and, and still keep my my uh, swagger, you know. Uh, and then a year later, I saw The Rock, and that was the first time I was exposed to Navy SEALs, and that's when I was just like, oh, that's what I want to do. Like, if I ever turn my life around, that's what I would do. But it was a it was a far fetched dream. It's like me saying right now, I want to run for president in twenty twenty. Like the reality that happened is fun to none, you know. Um, so fast forward, when I got to boot camp, there was a SEAL who came and he put on a, you know, he, 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 he well, first the, the boot camp drill sergeants, whatever they call them at the time, they, they said, hey, if you, any guy that's interested in being a SEAL, you know, go to the auditorium at this time. And I went to the auditorium and the SEAL came and put on the presentation, showed us a video, and gave him motivational talk. And then that dream kind of reemerged within me. I was just like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a SEAL. Um, um, but you know, I couldn't swim. I didn't have the academic scores, and I was skinny. But I, I didn't care. I was just like, I, whatever it takes, I'm gonna be a seal one day. Um, so that's kind of how it happened. Okay, so uh, back then, you know, we weren't producing seals the way we are now, and well, that's a whole different commentary and a whole different discussion. As you mentioned, uh, you, at that point, you weren't footing the bill academically or physically. So how do you get there? I went to my first command naval hospital, Camp Pendleton, and. Uh, <laughs> I just I just put the pedals to the metal. I mean, I went one of the you know early on. I, I went to my uh, LPO and I just said, hey, you know, I want to train to be a seal. Is there any way I can uh, work four hours in the morning and then have four hours off in the afternoon and work four hours at night? And she said sure, so she changed my schedule. And so you know, uh, four hours in the afternoon, I was I was I, you know I was running three miles to the pool, jumping in the shallow and trying to figure it out. They run three miles back home. Um, cause I didn't have a car, you know, we'll run to the gym and, and just jump on a pull up bar, or jump on the, you know, do push ups. I would just do different things to try to figure out, um, exactly what, you know, what to do to build up strength and, uh, endurance. Um, and then I bought an ASAP book, you know, academic study book. And I, uh, you know, I would just, I would just study it. I would study it. And then finally I realized, that, you know, I'm a very slow reader. I'm a very slow reader, and so I figured, okay, you know, reading through this entire asset book is not going to, it's not going to help. I need to, you know, find a strategic way to, to to study so I could retain this information. And so that's when I figured out, okay, just do the test in the back of the study guide because you know, you did. Then at the back of every uh, asset book, you had all these different tests that you could take. So I just kept testing myself over and over and over again. And that's how I gradually got better. And uh, you know, within 
within three months, four months, or actually within three, which within about two months, I was swimming. Within about three months, I was physically where I needed to be to, to get into buds. And then uh, in about six months, I had, well, about seven months, I was able to reach, I reached the dad's rappers, got the scores I needed. And then, um, and then by, I want to say by July, August, I passed the screening test. I passed on everything. And then I got orders to buds. I literally checked into my first command in January of 2003 and checked out to go to buds in January, 2004. Wow. Impressive. Um, you know, at any point in time when you're going through all this, um, did you ever stop and think about life back in the Bronx? Um, I mean, in, in what context? Well, like, I mean, listen, you, you know, you're sitting here, you know, running three miles to jump into a pool to figure out how to swim and studying all this extra stuff. At any point in time, you're sitting here saying, you know, if I wasn't doing this right now, I'd be on the street corner selling drugs. Uh, No. No, I, I didn't think about it like that. I, I, I just, no, I think, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person that I think I've always been this way, you know, don't burn a boat type of person, you know, and storm the beach, which means, you know, when I'm moving forward towards a goal, I don't look back. Right. You know what I mean? There is no looking back. Um, you know, I'm just stone fo- focused on what's in front of me. Um, and the past is the past, you know, and uh, I still try to operate that way to this day. What did your mother think of your decision to join the Navy? Oh, she didn't like it. Really? She didn't like it at all. Yeah. Why? Yeah, because, um, I mean, like, I would say 99% of moms, <laughs> you know. So yeah, but d- didn't, didn't she realize it was getting you out of a life that was going to get you killed? Uh, no, yes and no. I mean, no, because my mom didn't really know the stuff that I was involved in. Gotcha. She didn't, she didn't know all this. She didn't know the extent of how deep in I was. And that was because I was always good at hiding. Did you ever tell her after the fact how deep you were? She didn't know until she read the book last year. Last year. <laughs> <laughs> That's what right. You're and lying, really? Like, you no, know, I'm dead serious. Yeah, no, I'm dead serious. Wow. Um, uh, she was just like, I didn't know you were that crazy, you know. Um, um, and, you know, I, I, I did a great job of hiding. And that was something, you know, we early on, years ago, I, I could hide anything from anybody. I mean, even joining the Navy, you know. When I came, when I finally came back home, nobody believed that I was a SEAL because they were just like, "You're lying. You just came back from prison." Um, literally, people <laughs> I grew up with thought I was in prison. Um, it's a good cover, though. I, I left. I, I left skinny here. Yeah, I left skinny, and I came back Jacked. ripped up, yeah. <laughs> and tall, and, and you know, and everybody's like, "Dude, there's no." And everybody knew my personality, how I would be able to hide things and lie and this and that. So they was just like, "Yeah, whatever. You're lying. You're not. You're not a SEAL. You're not." <laughs> Did you take any pride um, in that? Uh, I mean, yeah, later I did. I mean, yeah, later I did. I mean, it was, it was cool, you know. <laughs> it was cool that, you know, you know. But again, it just goes back to I was able to hide things really, really well. Uh, I, you know, I was with a buddy of mine who I grew up with, who I was hustling with, actually, you know, uh, three weeks ago we were together in Atlanta. And uh, he was just like, man, he was, he was actually talking to my assistant and telling my sister the story. And he was just like, man, it was just like one minute Revy's here. And we're doing all of the stuff, and the next minute he's just gone, and wow. no one knows where he is. He just dropped off the face of the planet, and I'm getting phone calls from people like, "Where's Remy? What happened? We don't know where he is. Where's he gone?" Like, 
And then, and then he said, uh, my buddy Deshaun said to my sister, he's like, and then I saw Remy's mom one day and she was walking down the street and she just looked a mess. And, you know, I didn't even want to ask her what, what happened to Remy, but no one knew where I was because I, I hid it. I hid it from everybody. So, um, you know, going back to my mom, you know, she didn't, she didn't know the extent of what I was doing. So when I went to go join her fear was her, she wasn't happy because she wasn't like, Oh, Remy's getting out of this life of crime because she didn't know, but she was fearful because again, I think this happens to every mom. I get phone calls from mom sometimes. They're like, Oh, my son wants to join. He wants to be a seal. And I don't know what to do. I'm freaking out. And it's because, you know, you're on the military. Automatically you think death, you know, you think war or death. My son's going to go to war. He's going to die. Cause I mean, all the movies we see and just the history of the wars and the deaths. And especially now, you know, last, what, since 2001. So yeah, last 18 years, years, 18 years, yeah, yeah. 18 years of war, you know, people coming back, you know, people not coming back, people coming back losing limbs. That's, that's in the minds of every mom, you know, <laughs> you know? Um, and so they don't want to see their kids die or be seen permanently injured. So um, that's what it was for my mom. And my mom had a brother who was in the Korean War half brother and uh, a grenade blew up by, by his, by his head. And uh, he didn't die, but he was in our VA hospital for the rest of his life after that. Um, so, you know, my mom, my mom didn't want me to end up like him. That was the first thing that popped in her mind when, um, when I said military. All right. So let's, Bring you back to Buds. Uh, why do I get the feeling that if I ask you how physically challenging Buds was, you're going to tell me it wasn't that bad? It was horrible. Oh, okay. So you, <laughs> well, you seem to have a very nonchalant attitude about everything else. I just figured, you know, Buds yeah. would be the same for you. Why was it so bad? It just sucks. It's supposed to suck. It's funny because I, I, I ask that question of a lot of people who are SEALs, and, and I'm always amazed at the varied response. Some people will always say, like you said, physically it sucked. And other people will tell you, physically it wasn't as bad. It was the mental part that really got me. Um, and other people will tell you, you know, listen, I, I kind of knew what I was getting into. I knew what it was. Sure, it sucks. But I, I knew I was prepared mentally and physically to survive it. No, I'm just saying it sucks all around. I'm not even saying physically or mentally. I'm just saying in general, it sucks. I mean, uh, you know, each guy is entitled to his, uh, his opinion on it. But obviously, but for me, it just... It just I mean, sucks. It's straight, straight, straight torture. Two mile pond ocean swims and freezing cold water. I mean, for me, I didn't grow up in the water, so you know that was that was hard. Um, the runs, you know, the cold. I had no body fat. I had no body fat. At, I had even less body fat at the time. Um, so, you know, getting put in that cold water, my body. You know, I would I would get hypothermic faster than everybody else. Um, because of the fact that I had, you know, I had no body fat, you know, and my bones are so dense that when I jumped in the water for, you know, when, when we did drown proofing, which means you had to have your hands tied behind your back and your feet tied together, physically, um, I would just sink to the bottom with my hands tied behind my back and my feet tied together, but I still got to figure out how to stay on the surface for two minutes, <laughs> you know, sorry, five minutes, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, for everybody has different experiences and I think a lot of it is based off of your body type. Uh, you, every guy that shows up to buds physically, you, if you pass a physical screening test, you have essentially told the Navy, I am physically qualified to make it through SEAL training. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the question is, do you have deficiencies that is going to make it, that are going to make it harder for you to get through training? And I had a whole lot of deficiencies. Um, 
you know, one, you know, like I said, not having the body fat, you know, that, that, that killed me in the, when it came to the cold. I mean, there were time on, at the end of every two miles told time, it was just when I was either borderline hypothermic or hypothermic. You know, my core temperature at one point during the surf torture dropped down to 88.7 degrees. I had to be rushed to Bucks Medical. They rewarmed my body. After they rewarmed my body, they took me back out and said, hey, do you want to quit or get back in the water and get cold again? I said, you know, I'm going to get back in the water. I'm not quitting. You know, so, um, and then on top of that, you know, like I said, being negative, you know, being African-American, our bones are denser, jump in the water, you sink to the bottom, you know, so that just makes buds even more challenging. Um, and then, you know, just being an African-American, <laughs> buds, you know, class starts with 250, 270 guys at max, you probably have four black guys in the class, you know, uh, you don't get away with anything. Everybody, every buds instructor knows your name. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't get away with anything. <laughs> Kind of racist thing. It's no, I just, and that's why I'm just yeah. chuckling. I'm like, it's got a good point, you know, and the attrition rate's like, you know, 70%. So, you know, if one of them goes down, it's much, still much easier to spot the three, three remaining black guys left. So, yeah, yeah I, I get your yeah, point. Yeah, the bunch of instructors knows, knows every black guy's name. <laughs> 200 so strictly white guys, they don't, they can't know everybody. So <laughs> you, you don't get away with anything, and it's not because it's not due to racism or anything. It's just the reality. No, yeah, I got gotcha. you. But the reality is. Yeah, you know no, I, mean? I hear you, man. It's a, it's a I, unicorn, you know, it's in, in, in a, in, you know in, on, on farmland and you're surrounded by a bunch of white horses, you're going to say unicorn. Right, know? exactly. Um, <laughs> and so that's just the way it was for me. So, I mean, when you add all those things up, um, you know, for me, it was, it sucked, you know? Ever think um, you made a bad decision I, by going for it? No, not at all. And never once no. wanted to quit? Nope. Never once wanted to quit. Never crossed my mind. So when uh, you complete this thing, what what are you feeling? How much pride do you have? Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, from when I, I was just like, I'm glad it's over. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and there's more to the story. I went through all the SEAL training twice. Oh, really? So, you know, we had a big part of the story is, you know, I got kicked out, you know, in dive phase after making it through first phase and hell week, got to dive phase, failed some swims, got to pool week, failed the test in pool week, got kicked out, hey, go to the fleet, went to the fleet for two years, came back, started all over day one, went through first phase again, made it through hell week again, um, you know, uh, made it to dive phase, you know, made it through. So, uh, when I finally got through, it was just like, okay, it's about time. It's over now. It's time to get to work. You know what I mean? Was any of it easier the second time around? What's that? Was any of it easier the second time around? Oh, uh, yeah, because you know exactly what's going to happen. Right. I mean, for me, I knew exactly what I mean. I think it's easier when you know, okay, regardless of what happens, how week is going to end Friday at 12 o'clock, no matter what they say. Sure. You know, you um, know that they can always serve torture you for so long. You know, they go, I mean, so... So, yeah, I mean, you know, you talked about why you wanted to become a SEAL, but what, what was the inspiration? I mean, did you realize that you were going to be the tip of the spear and that as soon as you finished SEAL training, you were getting on a plane and going overseas and going to deploy? Yeah, I mean, that's why I wanted to be a SEAL. Okay. Well, I wanted, you know, like I said earlier, you know, I, I hated, uh, I hated bullies. Um, and I knew that, that, you know, I'm not knocking any other unit when I say this, or you know, I, I don't mean this in any bad way. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not minimizing any other unit any other way. So you know, I just want to state that for the record. Um, when I, 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 I just knew that seals were going after bullies. Like I know other units are, 
and will and have, I knew for sure if I became a SEAL, I would get a chance to go after police. Gotcha. No offense or buts. And so, and that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a SEAL that, you know, just walk around base with a trident on my chest or, you know what I mean? Right, right. And be able to tell people, fuck me, I wanted to be a SEAL because I wanted to kick down the horse and, and do the job that, you know, I was blessed, blessed to be able to do. So with that, you graduate, uh, buds, what time, you know, month and year? Uh, I graduate buds in 2000 and, uh, 2007, 2008. Okay. Um, yep. And then, you know, yeah, man, it's a good time. Well, and the reason I, I just to frame, you know, obviously you, you get on a plane, where is your first deployment and where do you, where do you go and what are you doing? What's your mission? Yeah, so all of my deployments were to the Middle East. Um, uh, ended up doing three deployments. Um, great career. I, I'm always really vague about it. Just sort of kind of work that I did. I worked in human human intelligence as well. So okay. I, so I did 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 you know certain things. Um, um, yeah, man, all of the Middle East. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I had a, I had a JSOC deployment. Um, was able to do some cool things there, and you know and yeah, it was great, great wins. I was blessed. So ultimately, why do you decide to get out of the Navy? Because uh, I had kids. I had three kids. I, well, I had two kids at the time. I had two boys. And, uh, you know, my son died when I was... I'm sorry, my dad died when I was five. And uh, Okay, you just scared you know, the hell out of me there for a second when you... <laughs> yeah, 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 no, uh, uh, yeah, definitely. I wish I my, no, my, my dad died when I was five, and... Uh, and I had two boys, and I knew the importance of, of being in their lives as much as I could because I saw the effects of not having a father in my life. Um, and so I, I got out because I wanted to be home. I wanted to be home with my kids as much as I could. And, uh, uh, and yeah, that's, that, that was ultimately the only reason why I got out. I mean, I was on, I was on track to do 20 years and um, move on to other units, you know, and, and do some other stuff, you know, within the teams. But for me, it was about my boys, man. Um, forgive the crass nature of the question, but did you not love the seals enough that you, you know, cause a lot of seals always, they, they pick that first over family. You know, they pick that first over wives and children and everything else because of this undying love for not only country, but the guys that they serve with, uh, not to say that you didn't love those guys, but, um, it, how come it seems like it was such an easy decision for you? It wasn't an easy decision for me. I mean, you got to remember, like, I, I know we breeze through it and for, for reasons that I try to, you know, I just try to respect the tribe and the brotherhood. That's why I don't really right. talk about a lot sure. of stuff or, you know, in detail, you are, you're but when, you know, we talk, we're talking about time-wise, talking about seven and a half, eight years in, in the, in the teens, right? Um, so it wasn't a short period of time. Um, and then on top of that, you got the, you got the, you got the training years <laughs> on top of that, right? Um, um, so, it, it was an extremely hard decision for me. Um, you know, I, I, you know, was, I, I went into depression when I was getting ready to get out because of how hard it was um, for me to get out. Um, I just knew that. It, I just knew that my kids came first because at the end of the day, um, the teens are going to always be around, <laughs> but, but I'm not going to always be around, and uh, my kids need me to be around. And there are guys in the teams who are able to do it, you know, and I got mad respect for the guys who, you know, have 
three, four, two, one kid, and then doing deployment after deployment, work about the work I've gone back and forth coming home. I got bad respect for them, but I'm a dude from the hood. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, I'm a black dude from the Bronx. You know what I'm saying? And I know how it is, you know, when you don't have a dad in your life. Right. And so my kids are my future. At the end of the day, when I leave this earth, only thing I'm leaving, one of the only things I'm leaving in this earth are my kids. You know, that's my legacy. So, you know, my kids are more important than anybody. And more important than any trident, more important than any special operations career, any career, anything. Um, you know, I'll say that to the day I die, you know. Um, what stays with you? Do. I'm sorry to cut you off. What stays with you from the teams? Is it the guys that you serve with, any of the guys that maybe you lost? Um, you know, what do you take away from that now? No, all of the above. I mean, I had, I had, my best friend was Charlie Keating. You know, or, you know, Chuck. You know, died, and you know, you know, um, I was with him before he deployed me, and we're at lunch together. You know what I mean? Um, Patrick Feeks. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, me we were in the same cash unit together, in the same platoon together. You know, at one point, uh, Mikey Monsoor got the Medal of Honor. We were in buds yep. together. Yeah. Brian Joe, you know, we were in Buds together. Mark Lee, we were in the same boat crew in Buds together. Um, Workman, who was on Extortion, you know, uh, 17, we were in the same boat crew in Buds together. You know, Nick Spihar, he was on Extortion, Extortion 17. We, you know, we were in training together. So, I mean, no, I mean, what sticks with me is the brothers, you know, who I've lost and the guys who are still alive and, you know, um, uh, Larson, you know, he, you know, he, you know, PTSD got him when he came back to the States. We weren't brought together. You know what I mean? Like those guys will always be with me. And, you know, what I do now is that it drives me, you know, because I always want to make those guys proud and represent the, represent the brotherhood and the teams proud. Um, and everything that I do now as a writer, and, you know, now moving into producing films and TV shows, you know, and, and uh, stuff that I do in the nonprofit world, you know, going into prisons and jails and, and working with Etmus, all that stuff I do, you know, you know that brother. There's a saying that a SEAL buddy of mine has come up with, and it's called New Platoon. You know, so for me, I'm not. I don't feel like I'm out of the SEAL teams. I still feel like I'm in the teams. I'm just doing. I'm just doing the work of a SEAL in a different way. Um, so I mean, that tried and burnt into my chest. You know what I mean? I got the bone frog on my arm, so that doesn't go anywhere. Um, so it was all with me, you know, the brotherhood, the, the principles that I learned in the SEAL teams, you know, drive me and everything that I do, especially as it relates to excellence, whatever you do, doing all of excellence, all of that stuff is, it'll never go away. What do you tell your kids about what daddy did while he was a SEAL? Yeah, you know what, my oldest is five. He okay. sees pictures on the house and he, all, you know, all he understands now is dad carried guns and he was a soldier. So that's what he said. Daddy was a soldier. <laughs> um, but as he gets older, you know, I'll be able to show him some more stuff and he'll explain it to him. But he loves guns and, you know, he loves, you know, sneaking around and doing all that kind of stuff, you know. So, uh, so yeah, they, you know, they, they're too young. My middle is about to be four. My youngest is two and a half months. So, <laughs> um, I'm sure they'll get more of it. As they get older, I'll be able to share more with them so they grasp and hold on to it more. Do you think you'd want them to ever join the military? They could do whatever they want as long as they do something after they graduate high school. <laughs> you know, um, um, you know, it's not something I would force on them. But if they want to join the military, I'd absolutely let them. Um, if they want to, you know, but you said you want to be the college military, or they better start some amazing business. <laughs> but they're gonna do something. I mean, how much of you 
is motivated by making sure your kids never had to grow up the way you did? I would say the majority of who I am now. I mean, um, it's a lot. I mean, I'm, I mean, ninety, ninety-five percent. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I think like I would say ninety-seven percent. Other three percent is me. You know, what motivates me is you know staying alive and you know and and and, and, and so that I could do the ninety-seven percent, which is giving my kids a life that I never had. Um, you know, not just for a period of time, but for the rest of their life. Um, you know, because again, that's my legacy. You know, that's that's all I leave in this earth is, is them. Um, so, and I want them to be better men than I could be. And, and a big part of that is is you know being able to provide for them financially. You know, and, and and so yeah. When you look back at your journey, what do you want to do different, if anything? Nothing. I mean, because everything that I did that was wrong, you know, uh, you know, one thing I learned in life is that, you know, the best lessons are through, through best lessons we learn in life is through pain, you know, mistakes, hardships, you know, because it's just, you know, pain, pain makes you remember, you know. Um, well, to that end, you know, I, where did you learn more lessons on the streets of the Bronx or in the Navy SEALs? Uh, I want to put one over the other. I would say, you know, equal amount. I mean, one, you know, boss gave me a lot of foundational principles to prepare me for the teens, you know, so um, I would say both. But I would say, as of now, you know, just giving you a quick answer without really, you know, absorbing it and, 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 and you know, thinking thinking through through uh, mm-hmm. further, I would, I would say it's equal, you know, because, I mean, I learned a lot about trust in the Bronx. I learned a lot about, you know, um, killers in the Bronx. Like the real killers are the ones that keep their mouth shut. Once we run their mouth, they ain't no real killers. And that, and that, and that kind of, that lesson alone translates into everything in life. <laughs> you know, right. and, and the, 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 the loudest people in the boardroom are usually the weakest, right? The most quiet, humblest people in the boardroom are usually the strongest, you know? So that's, I mean, that's a principle I learned in the streets. You know what I mean? Um, where did you experience more fear and more danger? Streets of the Bronx or deployed? Um, I don't want to use the word fear. I mean, I, I mean, where was your uh, life more in jeopardy on a routine basis? Uh, well, obviously, my life was in danger during the rains. <laughs> right? You know, you know, getting shot at, almost getting. Uh, you know, getting ambushed, you know what I mean? You, you know, but, I mean, I okay, but, so, so, but you and I can both dissect this. Like, okay, you know for the most part when you're on base, whatever time you're there, you know, you're, you're relatively safe for the most part. When you mm-hmm. walked out your front door in the Bronx, you all of a sudden were outside the wire, so to speak, right? And that was literally every oh, day. Absolutely. Whether, no, okay, absolutely. so whether you went to school or whether you were just running to go to the, the convenience store or whatever it was, you know, that happened on a daily basis when you're, or even when you're in combat, you know, you only, it only happens really when you leave the wire per se, unless you're in the wrong spot when a mortar hits. But I, I mean, you get what I'm saying. So that's why I kind of asked the yeah. question that way. Like where, where did you feel like, you know, you had to survive more danger on a routine basis? I mean, I mean, if we're looking at it from a time perspective, I mean, just purely time, you know, I was in the Bronx from 87 to Two thousand and two, right? <laughs> I mean, so I mean, you're looking at 
you're looking at in the crack. I mean, even the, the crack epidemic was 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 at its peak in '87. Right. You know what I mean? So I mean, you, you're talking about drug wars. Mafia was still was still prevalent at the time. I remember yeah. seeing mafia guys when I was walking down the street going to bodegas and collect rent. I mean, so the danger. I mean, I, mean, I was shot. I shot at it. I was 12, 11 years old, running in the middle of a shootout. Mm-hmm. Drive by. You know what I mean? Bullets, you know, flying all over the place. I mean, so, I mean, I don't know. I think it's different. I mean, it's different. I mean, yeah, every day, but, you know, I think you learn to adapt and you learn to, you know, walk with your head down and, and move as fast as you can and mind your own business, you know, to, to avoid the things. You kind of learn how to adapt and survive as time goes on. You know what I mean? Whereas in combat and, and downrange, you know, you don't know when you're going to get hit, how you're going to hit. Cause for our, us, we're not on the defensive, you know, like a lot of infantry units, we're on the offensive, right? Sure, so, yeah. I mean, you plan, you, you know, you, you go, you, you do your planning, your mission planning, how you're going to hit a target, you know, uh, what the assault force is going to look like, you know, what the, you know, how you're going to insert all that stuff, plan it out. And then you're planning to, to win it, not planning to lose, but you also plan for contingencies as well. Um, <clears throat> So, you know, it's just two different worlds. You know, I wouldn't put one over the other, you know, because, you know, I've been in some situations where, you know, I mean, I mean, we're going into situations knowing that we're outnumbered, right? Going into a situation knowing that, you know, this this is not our territory. This compound we're going in or this area we're going in is probably going to be X amount of fighters. And when you're only going in with, you know, your assault element is probably only going to be 16 guys, you know, mm-hmm. on the ground. So you're outnumbered. So, I mean, it's different, man, two different worlds. Sure. Both of, them are, both of them are equally dangerous. I want to put one over the other. I mean, but but if you look at it from a time perspective, yeah, I lived in the Bronx from 87 and up to 2002, you know. Uh, look at my time in the teens, you're talking, you know, you, you know, looking at, even the Navy in general, because I was in the infantry with the Marines before I even booked one, you know, after I got kicked out of the bus the first time. So you look at it, 2000, 2004, 2005 to 2016, you know? So, I mean, it's different. You mentioned it earlier. The title of the book is called Transformed, uh, A Navy Seal's Unlikely Journey from the Throne of Africa to the Streets of the Bronx to Defying All Odds. The last part of defying all odds. What odds did you defy? I mean, outside of just surviving, you know, the Bronx and everything else. What sort of odds are we talking about here? Uh, a lot, man. I mean, uh, just just, you know, just look at the Africa piece coming from Africa to the Bronx with nothing. Right. <laughs> you know, sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, defied a lot of odds by just making it, just surviving day every day. We survived. You know. Uh, and my mom was able to keep the roof over our head and food on the table. That was the fine odds. You know, people ask me all the time, where do you get your perseverance and resilience from? And I tell them, you know, I had a living example of it every day of my life. You know, she defied the odds every single day. She was able to put the food on the table because there was no, she had, there was no reason why she should have been able to put food on the table. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, she never compromised who she was. She never remarried. She never dated. You know, she was specific. She was just like, my job is to raise my boys. And I don't want to bring another man into this house and, and add confusion. Um, and so, you know, my mom did it all on her own. So she defied the odds every single day. Um, education, the education system, I touched on it. I touched on it extensively in my book, but the education system in the Bronx is horrible. 
and I shared, you know, at the time I was going up, only 20% went to college. Um, 60% dropped out of high school. Um, those are odds I defied. I have a master's in organizational strategy. I have my bachelor's in, 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 in uh, organizational leadership. So I defied those odds swimming. You know, um, and, I mean, when you look at the statistics as it relates to African-American kids who know how to swim, you know, or African-American in general who know how to swim, and then you being an ABC or where you got to be able to swim like a fish, I defied those odds. Um, and the list goes on and on and on. You know, if you need to look at just getting through buds, class I graduated with started out with 270, only 29 of us graduated. You know what I mean? I divide those odds by making it to his children. Right, yeah. uh, We can go on, you know, getting into Hollywood. Um, you know, how many people try to be an actor in Hollywood, you know? And my first movie, the first thing I really do is I'm in a blockbuster movie called Transformers. I divide those odds. You know what I mean? And uh, now as a writer, you know, getting a book deal and writing the book by myself, no ghostwriter. Uh, when everybody said, there's no way you're not going to be able to do it, you won't be able to write your book. Um, and, and I wrote that book myself, no co-writer, no ghostwriter, all myself. I defied those odds. Um, and now with what I'm doing in Hollywood, I'm defying more odds as a writer or producer. So uh, that's what I mean by defying odds. Yeah, that was a pretty good answer to that question. I felt like it was a stupid question after I answered, asked it, and then you kind of really detailed uh, yeah. <laughs> well, everything that you have. It's just unreal. Um why did you write the book? Were you hoping to just do more than tell a story or was there a greater purpose involved? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, it was to inspire positive transformation of people. You know, um, um, for years, people who heard my story, just the African to the Africa to Bronx piece, my story would tell me, Remy, you need to write a book um, because this is, this is an amazing story that can inspire a lot of people. And uh, for years, I said no, uh, especially because I know the stigma attached to seals who do write books. Um, and then, fast forward, I went on the Today Show to promote Transformers, and Kathy Lee Gifford pulled me aside and said, "Right, you write a book." Um, a book, so I know that again that this book can inspire people. And I told her no, and she said, "Why not?" I explained to her, and she said, "You know, but Remy, I know you could, you could write it from the perspective of of not an operator perspective, where you're giving away secrets and talking about missions and trying to beat your own chest and say, look at me.' But I know that you could write it in a way that can inspire people. And so that's what kind of prompted me to write the book um, because I wanted people to, and, and I'm very vulnerable. That one of the one of the um, one of the pieces of the consistent feedback I get from the book is how, man, like I can't believe you shared some of the stories you shared. You're just so vulnerable. Um, but thank you for being vulnerable because that has helped me um, in the area of my life where I'm struggling. Um, and, uh, I, you know, when I wanted people to pick up this book and see themselves in the stories. Um, I say, wow, if I can get through that, you know, I can get through this. Um, and, and, you know, Remy's failed over and over again, but he is where he is now. You know what? I know I failed over and over again. That means that I have hope. I want to give people hope. So, um, yeah, that's why I wrote it. If you were to go back and talk to the Remy Adelaide in 1999, 2000, what would the Remy today tell him? Nothing. Really? No. Yep. Because I know the Remy back then wouldn't listen. <laughs> and to, You don't think uh, you could have ever reached him? Nope. Nobody could have reached him. I had to go through all of the stuff that I had to go through in order for to be rich. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I wouldn't say anything. I would just, I would just, I would just watch and smile uh, because I know that he's about to go through. There's more hell he's going to go through, <laughs> but it's all going to be worth it. Um, I wouldn't say anything. 
I don't want to say anything at all. I want to give him any tips. I want to give him any lessons. I want to say nothing. That's interesting. Most people, if you ask them in general, go back and give a lesson to your younger self, they would feel like they could convince their younger self because it's them that they could, you know, talk some sense into them. I, I've never heard anybody ever give that answer that I would not say Sorry. anything to them. No, because I'm an obstinate. I've always been a very obstinate person. And, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. I, I work in, I work in um, non-profit work now. I work with at-risk youth. And um, because of how obstinate I used to be, I see myself in a lot of these kids. And for some of these kids, I know the fix isn't me telling them, do your homework, do this, do that. I know that the fix for, for some of these kids is just sitting and being with them because a lot of these kids don't have dads in their life, lives. And, 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 and they, need to, they need to have somebody to look to on a consistent basis. Um, it's not just about speaking. It's not just about words. It's about action. And so, you know, I know that the remedy back then, you want to be able to reach them by just me telling you, hey, do this and do that. You know, he would need a consistent person in his life to show him by example. And I wouldn't be able to do that. And and I wouldn't want to do that because I wouldn't want to, because I, I want Remy in 99 to go through all of the things that he, he's going to go through because that's where he's going to learn his most valuable lessons. If I just go in and just give it to him in a 10 minute conversation, he won't appreciate it. But if he goes through the pain and learn the most important lessons, then he's going to be where he is today. It's an amazing journey, Remy. Um, there's just so much to it, so many layers. Uh, you, you've obviously detailed how far you've come. Uh, I, I don't. I feel like trying to recount it all doesn't do it justice, and I don't serve it the way you do, so I won't even try. But to that yeah. end, I mean, it certainly. Uh, I've, I, I'm more than impressed uh, by what you've been able to accomplish and everything in Hollywood now. Uh, real quick, just kind of tell everybody where where you are in Hollywood and what's going on and what's next for you. I mean. Do you plan on being on camera again? Are you working more now behind the scenes? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I've i done a lot of on-camera work. I uh, just finished up a film um, with Michael Bay for Netflix. It's going to come out in the winter 2019. I'm on camera, but I was hired mainly as a consultant on the film. Um, so I got I got that coming out. But, but man, I've, I've gotten more into writing and producing. Um, just uh, one, you know, adapting my, my book into a film. And then two, there's two TV shows we're looking to pull out of my book. Uh, and then I'm, and then I wrote an uh, espionage thriller, um, uh, which is a film franchise uh, that we're looking at just getting traction in Hollywood to, to turn that into a big film, spy film franchise. And I'm working on a historical, uh, uh, historical black military film now that I'm writing myself right now. I hope I'm about halfway through. I should be done within the next two weeks. So just creating content. Um, um, and getting out there, telling, telling, you know, these awesome stories, but, you know, telling them, you know, with the experiences that I have, you know, there's a lot of, and I'm not knocking them, there's a lot of writers in Hollywood who are writing action and military films, and that Saving Private Ryan was an amazing movie, I love it, um, um, and I want more movies to come out like that, and I think one of the key ways to get or create movies like that and have the, the originator of, uh, of, the, of the writing and, and the stories be somebody with those backgrounds. So um, be people with those backgrounds. And so I'm um, just really excited about um, this next way ahead and this next chapter of my life, just moving down that area. 
Well, I wish you nothing but continued success. Uh, again, just an amazing story. The book is called Transformed. It's out. You can get it everywhere. Uh, certainly, thank you so much uh, for your candor, your honesty, and and being open and willing to tell us everything about your past. And, uh, you know, certainly thank you for your service, obviously, and what you're doing now. And listen, man, uh, uh, brother to brother, as somebody wore a uniform, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of everything you've been able to accomplish, and you've gone on to much greater things than I'll ever accomplish in the rest of my life. But that said, man. Hey, we Thank you, brother. Well, we all have our part to play, man. And thank you for your service to this country as well. And uh, thanks for getting the word out and, and sharing. You know, I know you've shared a lot of amazing men worn in uniform and women. You've shared their stories on this platform. So thank you for sharing these, these stories of heroism and patriotism and, 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 you know, stories of men and women who sacrificed everything to, 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 to provide, you know, freedom, freedoms that we have here in this country. You know, so thank you. Remy Adelaide, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground Podcast. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done, all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot HTM.